All right, let's wrap it up. Somebody say worldview. Thank you. Do you know that everybody has a worldview? Everybody has a set of lenses that they view the world from. A worldview is a perspective in which you see the world. The interview that you just saw me do was with somebody on the streets in Wicker Park, and he said his worldview was pragmatism. I showed him that pragmatism could lead to us nuking the world and eating our children. He then had to abandon it and admit there had to be something more. Uh, we're going to get better at our edits, but he had to admit there was something more and that he was willing to listen to something more, and I brought him back to the golden rule, and he was like, yeah, that could work. You see, the problem is this generation doesn't know what they've traded their worldview for. When we stopped believing in the Bible, we didn't stop believing, period. We just started believing in something else. In other words, everybody still has a worldview. It's just most of them are wrong and broken right now. So imagine if while you were a child learning to see, like my baby Titus, we implanted in you contacts that make you view the world as everything with a gray tone. They would grow with your eyes. They would never need to come out. Imagine going through the entire world and basically gray, black or white in other words. Imagine then someone talking to you about color. And they're literally pointing to the rose, the same rose you're looking at, and they're saying, isn't this beautiful? This is amazing. Imagine you take them to the botanical garden where my family loves to go, and you're pointing to all of these beautiful colors, and they keep telling you, all I see is gray. All I see is gray. Now, in one sense, are they lying? No, but are they telling the truth? No, see, their perspective may be true for them, relatively true, but it's not absolutely true. The absolute truth is that there is color and that something is blocking their vision. The difference between relative truth and absolute truth is relativism changes by perspective. Absolutism is something that cannot be changed. And so what our culture has done is exchange the absolute truth for relative truth. In another interview that we had on the streets that we didn't have time to play for you here today, the man said, I feel like my worldview is objective relativism. That's like saying basically he believes in square circles. How can you believe something is relative and objective at the same time? You can't. He then went on to describe something to me to help me understand. He said, well, I'm standing on solid ground like an iceberg, but the iceberg is still moving. So my solid ground is absolute, but the iceberg is still moving relatively. Now, how many know icebergs melt? And how many know they're not going to be there very long? So really what you've called objective relativism is still nothing more than relativism. It's just your opinions. And like the old saying goes, opinions are like armpits. Everybody's got two of them, and most of the time they stink. So we don't need to live by opinion. We need to live by a biblical worldview. So open up your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 as we talk about worldview. Can I hear you say worldview again, please? Thank you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 teaches us how important it is that we guard our thoughts and how we see the world around us. Could you be here today with gray-colored contacts on, so convinced that what you're seeing is right, but really it is not absolutely true? Yes, we all could be deceived. Have you ever done the thought experiment and tried to find yourself out of this thought experiment? I'll lead you down the rabbit hole and tell me how you get out. There's a scientist that came in the middle of the night. He took your brain out of your body, and now he has put it on his spaceship. He is flying back to his home planet, but what he wants to do is keep you at peace. So like the Matrix, he's given you a virtual reality of the world you were in the night or day before. So right now, you are no longer in this church, in your body. You are a brain in a vat in a Martian's spaceship heading to his planet. How do you disprove that? Relativism cannot disprove that because everything is relative to their perspective. Therefore, they have no other way to find truth outside of their perspective. So that could be true. As the Greek philosophers used to argue, because they wouldn't know the technology like a brain in a vat, they used to argue, how do you know you're not in a dream of one of the gods? You could be in a dream in one of the gods. How would you know the difference? 
Well, how do people with absolute truth come out of that endless cycle or rabbit hole? We say, God said. Now they may say back to you, how do you know that God said? We say, God said that he said. They go, oh, silly Christian, that's just so silly. God said that he said, so you believe it? And then now we show them that if God has not said that he said, then we can know nothing, including the question that we're having right now, not only am I a brain in a vat in a spaceship, but as Descartes said, do I even exist? The only foundation you can start with to say you exist is that God must have put me here. When you bring it to its ultimate conclusion, either nothing created something which is logically impossible or something created the something you're in right now, that's the only way you can start your journey. Now, could that something be a deceiving something? It could be that deceiver, the God of the world, could be a deceiver, but that is not what Jesus said when he represented that God. And Jesus confirmed what the prophets had said that he had said, and then Jesus raised from the dead validates what those prophets said because he fulfilled their prophecies and he did what no one has ever done, raised from the dead. I'm listening to that one. I found my way out of the matrix. How about you? See, people think that's too simple, but yet you see how easily we destroy, literally destroy their worldview. If God has not said, you can know nothing. Can I show you that in a scripture before we even go to 2 Corinthians? Somebody say, show it. In the beginning was the word. Do you know that the Greek word there is logos, where we get the word logic? In the beginning was logic, and the logic was with God, and logic was God. Logic is not just a composition of thoughts that we have. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal, one of the first philosophical notions. Logic is not just a thing we do. Logic is a person. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All life comes from a person. All truth comes from a person. Now, does that mean that when I put a logical deduction on paper, I'm looking at Jesus? No, but it's like the sun that has rays. When I see the rays, I know there's a sun. When I use logic, I know there's a logic giver based in his own mind. When I do science, I know there's a science giver, a designer based in his mind. So where is all truth? Where is all knowledge? In the mind of God. In the beginning. In the beginning, as far back as a beginning you can go. Even Genesis uses that language. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. So even before there was heavens and earth, in that beginning, there was the word, and he was with God. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Now he gets personal pronouns. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So all creation has come through him, the logic, the word. In him was life and light, and that life was is the light of all mankind, so he gave life to all living creatures, but he gave the light of the conscience uniquely to mankind. That's why you're not an animal. And then it says in verse 5, the light, talking about your conscience, shines in the darkness, even in a dark, sinful world, and even in a dark, sinful heart, you still have a conscience. The light, shines in the, car the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, how do we know who that logic is, who that person of truth is? John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of everything that is true. Jesus is the embodiment of everything that is gracious and kind and loving. That's why the Bible says God is love. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians. Are you ready to get it on? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So you are in a war right now, a war of worldviews. Did you know that? From watching Oprah Winfrey to politics to the news, everyone is talking to you about their worldview. They're telling you as they see it, and they're trying to convince you of what they see as being true. How do we now decipher who is true in this worldview war? 
The Bible tells us we live in the world, but we don't fight according to them. Verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So in the Greek Empire, in the Aztec Empire, in the Roman Empire, in the Zulu Nation Empire, any continent, the Chinese Dynasty Empire, they fought their worldview wars with weapons. We're your emperor. I don't believe you're a god among men. Slip off his neck. Child, do you believe I'm now a god among men? Because your dad just died for not believing it. Yes, I believe. And that's how they conquered people. And then the children raised up and believed. That's how the Aztec conquered. That's how the Mayans conquered. That's how the Zulu nations conquered. That's how the Egyptians conquered with their worldview. Do you believe this Pharaoh is your god? No, you die. Child, do you believe this? Yes, I'll worship him. That's how the Nazis did it. That's how the Romans did it. They conquer with their wars to conquer the worldview. Is that how we conquer worldviews? With our wars. No, that's why we're not Roman Catholic. When Rome gathered up power in Christianity around the 6th century, they started to war with their worldview. And during that time, they killed people like me, burned us at the stake when we believed in the Bible alone, not the Pope's authority. They began to martyr all the Jews who wouldn't convert. They mistreated people, the Spanish Inquisition and these things. That's why we protested and broke away and started a free church. We started a church that was for all all the people where everyone would be welcome to read and study the Word of God, not having it in Latin, a language nobody reads. So look at the Bible. The, re- the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, watch this, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So get this, you can conquer a nation by force, but not tear down the stronghold that's over that nation that has deceived their minds. When you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, same author, Paul, as we learned in our former series, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and the high places that are warring against us. So ultimately, where are these worldviews, ideas coming from that are against God? They come against from the enemy, exactly. They come from the spiritual world. Satan is the one deceiving. Where do you think the idea of abortion came from? from the spiritual demonic realm of homosexuality. All of these temptations have come from these fallen angels, these demons that want to take us from God and his power. There is a battle going on, and it's not only in the world, it's in the heavenly realms. Are you listening? Do you all believe that? Let me just show some of you want to see it again, because I know some of you haven't seen that. I'm just going to remind those who weren't here in the Ephesians series, it's such an encouragement to know that God is not only powerful in the physical world, but in the spiritual world. Uh, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Where is he scheming? He's scheming against your mind and what you believe. He's scheming against what are going to be your foundations. This young man that I was talking to about pragmatism, he did not realize where his worldview led. The Bible says there's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end, it leads to death. They don't see the path that Satan's putting before them. Most people don't. They just take the bait. They take the scheme, in other words. They take the lies, and they become deceived. But the Bible says don't do that. Stand against them. And then it says in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these rules and authorities. So make sure you put on your spiritual armor. That's how we're going to do it. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So do we have weapons? Yes, but are our weapons worldly, carnal? No, not guns and and bombs. Our weapons are the truth of God, the word of God. Jesus said, when you know the truth, the word, the truth will set you free. Now look at verse 5. Now when we talk to people with different worldviews, do we accept their argument, tolerate their argument, just say everybody has an opinion, or do we demolish their arguments? Look at what the Bible says. Not me, the word of God. This is true whether Joe was here doing it or not. But let me just tell you, it's a lot funner to be here than not be here. And I love doing it. It doesn't mean we don't like people. Remember, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. I have nothing against the young man I'm talking to. I have nothing against the gay or lesbian community or the Muslim community. There is not a fight between us in a worldly sense. Does everybody get that? It's a fight among ideas and ideals. So when I say something like this, don't take it the wrong way. I love Muslims, but I hate Islam. 
I love Roman Catholics, but I hate Catholicism. I love atheists, but I hate atheism. Just like I love my children, and I hate the bad attitude. Love the sinner, hate the sin. How many have heard that before? It's a biblical principle. Jesus, uh, the Bible says God so loved the world that he died for the world. But when he loved the world, did he love the sin of the world? Did he love the rape of the world, the child molestation? No. He loved the people of the world. He died for their sins. Watch this. We demolish, verse 5, arguments and every pretension. We don't use that word as much anymore, but some of us get it. Like, don't be so pretentious with me. It's almost like you say it pretentiously, right? Don't be so pretentious as I'm being pretentious. The idea is you are prideful and you think you know something that everybody else doesn't. That's what the pretension is. You are providing an answer to something you really haven't thought about, but you think everybody else is wrong. How will you hear this on the streets? You'll hear somebody be pretentious like this. You know what? You Christians, you just judge everybody. I'll tell you what, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. What have they just done by saying you Christians judge everybody and are a bunch of hypocrites? They just judged you. They just pretentiously threw out the very thing they're accusing you of doing. So we go to the Bible and say, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. For the measure you judge by, you also will be judged in Matthew. But he also said in John, judge righteously. So how do we balance that? We don't judge according to our opinions, our dress codes, our diets, our culture. We judge according to the word of God. You just judged me by your own pretentious attitude. I'm telling you what the judge said. That's what the word of God is, is what the judge said, right? If Judge Judy wrote a book and you were going to go up here before Judge Judy, wouldn't you read the book first to prepare to meet Judge Judy? Come on. We demolish arguments and every pretension. Now watch this. That sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So it says, here's, here's the knowledge of God. I'm going to go, boop, 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 boop. I'm going to go up to God's level and pick a fight. That's what these worldviews are actually doing. They're not against you personally. That's why it doesn't matter who you are. The moment you've become a Christian, you have been now involved in this epic battle that's been going on since the Garden of Eden. It's not about you. Don't take it personal. Don't get upset because they get upset with you. The battle has been going on even before the Garden of Eden, right, when the angels fell. And specifically on this earth since they, uh, Satan came and deceived Adam and Eve. So stand for the truth and don't be so sensitive. Love people even when they don't love you. Notice that it comes against the knowledge of God. Not against the knowledge of Joe. It's not like Joe's so smart or you're going to have to learn so many things. Yes, it's our job as pastors and teachers to help equip you. But if you know the basics, you can stand your ground. It takes itself, it sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And then what do we do? We take captive every thought, and then we make it obedient to Christ. So I don't take captive people and now say, you be obedient to Christ. We don't do that. Come on. Somebody say, slavery is bad. We're not doing that. Slave traders, according to the Bible, go to hell. You cannot kidnap and slave trade and do it in the name of Jesus. It's anti-everything of the Bible, starting with the golden rule, okay? Nobody wants to be a slave, so don't make a slave. There you go. But what do we do? We take captive thoughts, and so you get a thought that comes in your brain and says, well, my best friend has come out as lesbian, and she seems so nice, and she still goes to her church, and now that church is accepting of that lifestyle. That must mean God has changed his opinion since the Old and New Testament was written, and now in the modern century here, the modern age, it's okay. No, what you're supposed to do is, come here, you little thought. Come here. I'm going to take you captive, and now I'm going to make you be obedient to Christ. And what we do is we say the word of God back to that. We say the word of God back to that. What would we say? Something along the lines of God in the beginning created them male and female. That they would come together in holy marriage and be fruitful and multiply. Has that changed? No. You little thought, you're not taking me captive. I'm taking you captive and I'm making you obedient to Christ. Can I hear an amen? So how many today want to demolish some arguments and pretensions and take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ? Amen. Now, does this work in politics? You better believe it does. Because if we take Christians out of politics, what kind of mess are we going to have left? Does this work on your job? You better believe it does. Because let me ask you a question. Do they take off their worldview glasses when they come to your job? 
No, they keep it on. Do they take off their worldview glasses when they run for politics? No. All the world keeps their worldview glasses on, and the Christian ought to do the same. Now, you may say, what about in our country, the idea of separation of church and state? Remember, we're not fighting for a church to control the state. We're just asking for arguments to be defeated with truth. And so you have to be, the Bible says, as gentle as a dove and as shrewd as a serpent. How do you do that in the workplace without putting out the Bible, setting up a, a podium and start preaching? Just keep dropping truth on them. When they're talking about things that affect worldview, just bring out the truth. I didn't need many verses at the beginning with that young man. All I did was just take his own view, flip it on itself, and give him a scenario and say, what do you think about it? My wife and I laughed because as we watched it, you know, I was like, I want to know what you think about what I think, okay? You like that, you know? And then I told him what I was thinking about, people nuking the world and eating children. And I was wondering if he was thinking to himself, Pastor, I don't want to know what you're thinking about anymore because that's kind of crazy. Uh, but the only reason why I was thinking about that is because I just took his worldview Whatever works is right. I just took pragmatism. Whatever works is right. And notice, in pragmatism, there's nothing about morally right. It's just whatever works. So, for example, we're potty training one of my children right now, two years old. We are gently doing it over this next year. Our goal is three, to be potty trained. That's what we like to set up from two to three. Now, I could effectively potty train her better that every time she wet herself or pooed on herself, I took a cattle prod with about 100 volts of electricity and stuck it on her and started torturing her. I bet you after a while, she would get the lesson quicker than me doing it now. So therefore, pragmatism is right if if you take away all moral responsibility. But now, most people don't want to live that way, just like this man. He wants the world to be moral. He wants it to be a nice place. Well, guess what? You don't find that in the pragmatism toy box. If you go looking in the pragmatism toy box, all you see, if it's, it's right, do it. Or if it works, do it. Where do you find things like morals and happiness and kindness? What box do you find that in? The Christian box. Now, other religions may claim to do that, and we'll talk about that later. Trust me, we'll have a talk about Eastern philosophies and how those worldviews have come in. We'll do a talk on Islam, maybe uh, an entire talk on Catholicism. I'll try to do in this worldview series as many popular worldviews you'd run into. But can I show you another scripture? Go with me to Romans chapter 12, please. Because now it's not just for those of us here who are Christians and say, I get it. It's, uh, it's not just only for out in the world, rather, who say, I don't know any of these things. I'll be a Christian then. No, it's also for Christians. We have to constantly be renewing our mind to the worldview of heaven. So everybody think about this right now. You see the world a certain way, going back to the contact example, right? But how do you think God sees the world right now? Who do you think it sees it more clear, you or God, right? So we know to the person with the gray contact, we got, we got them beat on that. Man, this is not gray. This is really pink. This is, you know, purple. This is beautiful. But God steps back and God goes, hey, you guys think you see the world. Look at how I see the world. So we need to have on the worldview of God constantly, and, and that never stops. There have been times in my life, especially since being married and having children, where I'm constantly getting renewed in my mind to see God's way. I don't know if anybody saw my picture on Facebook of me holding baby Titus. Holding baby Titus renews my mind to understand the Father to understand how he feels about us as his children. Does anybody get those revies from their family or people they love? And so the idea isn't just non-Christians change. It's Christians who have been changed continue to change, continue to, you know, clean off the, the smudge on the glasses, to look at how you're looking at your family, looking at your, your job. Because could I be honest with you since I'm talking about worldviews? Can I be honest? This is the source of all of our problems. When we don't see God's perspective in our marriage, we're going to be more apt to fight with each other. If we don't see God's perspective in our sexuality, we won't live holy. When we don't see God's perspective in our money, we'll hold on to our wallet and say, God, you can have my heart, but if you want my wallet, come and get it, God. You know, we'll be sassy with God like that because we don't see 
the world the way he does. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and onward. Same author, Paul, writing to the Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. We've talked about this here. You're basically saying it's not about even what my body feels. My body will be my slave. I'll make my body serve God, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now look at verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, the Greek word metamorphosized, be metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing there is not a renovation. It's not taking old and then putting in new pieces. And so now it's kind of like I start the renovation project. It's 100% old. I do a few things. Now it's 10% new, 90% old. The Christian faith is starting new as a new creation. Think of it like this, instead of you think of it always as God is trying to change you and fix you and change and fix you, think of it as the terms the Bible actually gives us. You're made new as a child, and now as you mature as a child, you have new patterns as you mature. Does everybody get the difference? So you're never stuck at a place where you could use the excuse and say, well, God's still working on me. He's only renewed about 10% of me. 90% still here. And that's the part coming out, so get ready. You know, That's the 90% you don't like, and it's coming hard and fast. No, when we're born again, the Bible says we are a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. And so what is the renewing? The renewing is a brand new spiritual life. That's what it means to be born again. John chapter 3 verse 3. And then watch what it says. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So think about it like this. You were born again. And now you have a desire to serve God. The Holy Spirit is there leading your conscience. And now you're going to face a situation that you used to face before and do it a certain way that was wrong. Now God says, let me renew the way you handle this situation. Maybe you would get into a fight with your boss. Now I want you to be humble and be teachable. Or maybe you would look at pornography at this time at night. I want you to pray and trust me with your sexuality. Or you would withhold your finances because you were so scared that if you didn't do it all yourself, God would never bless you. You're going to come to that situation and say, I'm going to trust God. So you'll renew your mind in the process. The new behaviors will come in your mind, uh, to your mind, through your body as you test this as you personally approve it. You have to say, I approve of this. God is not going to make you his puppet. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Now, I have a couple definitions here for you. This will probably either be a two-parter or a three-parter, so make sure you keep coming. All the notes are online and on our app if you want to go over them to prepare for next week. Because I really want us to get this because it affects so much of our life. Just in review, the definition of worldview is how we see the world. And then now this is where I want to end today, a little bit deep, but I want to make it practical as well. The levels of knowledge. Now let me put this up here so you can see it and try to expand the way you've thought about things, okay? So we're going to talk about how you think. We're going to think about thinking. When you're understanding levels of knowledge, this is called epistemology, just learning how to learn, knowing what you know, thinking about what you think. I like to draw out a pyramid like this to help people so that they can start to build a worldview based on God's word. Here you would have an axiom, and for the chart here, this could be the chart of anybody's worldview, but I'm going to show you how we'll do it as a Christian. Our axiom or our base level of knowledge is God's word. As I just demonstrated before, we couldn't know anything unless God told us. Let me give you another example to this in case you might be thinking that's really juvenile and it's really simple and easy to defeat. Remember, I would have to put you back into the, the brain and the vat and all of that, leave you down the rabbit trail. But let's move on from that example. Let me just give you another one. Imagine you are born as a child, and then you are left on an island, and on that island, let's say they have robots that can easily feed you until you become older, and then they can communicate. Let's just say you can learn life skills by these robots on this island. Now, as you come of age of conscience and you start asking questions like, who am I? Why am I here? And what am I doing? And by the way, those are all worldview questions. You now have no answer that you can give yourself. Any knowledge you have about who you are, where you come from, and what you're doing belongs to somebody else. The makers of those robots, the people who put you there. Are you guys tracking with me here? Now, imagine if someone came to that island and said to you, I know who you are. 
Your mom and dad are these people that were pretty crazy scientists, and they said, we're going to do an experiment. There's actually cameras all around, kind of like the Jim Carrey movie where he was on a reality show basically his whole life. And they start to explain all this to you, right? Why would you then doubt any of those things? If you doubted those things, you must have a more certain level of knowledge than the knowledge they're giving you. You couldn't just say, well, I don't believe it. That doesn't sound right. I don't think that would happen. You would actually have to say, I don't believe it because of a reason that is better. When we talk about the Bible being the solution, we are talking about the impossibility of the contrary. Everybody say the impossibility of the contrary. Meaning, unless you put as an axiom the biblical God explaining to us why we're on this planet and where we came from, Adam and Eve, and how we have morals, you cannot know anything. And I know that sounds really boisterous, but it is so true. And as many times I get on the street and find people to discuss it with, I will show it to you over and over again. The God of the Bible is the only true knowledge you and I can have of why we are here. Because in one sense, we are all on this island, which is the island of earth. And so the Bible is our axiom. We'll talk more about how we know the Bible. Somebody will say, well, well men wrote the Bible. Well, men wrote math books. Do you believe that? Did an angel have to write something for it to be true? True is true no matter who says it. Imagine you're at the bar and you need to go get something for your wife. She needs some milk. And, and you're like talking to the barkeep. And he says, hey, do you know where I can get milk around here? And he goes, no, I don't know any place that's still open. And the drunk next to you goes, hey, there's a Walgreens about two blocks this way. Does it matter if the guy was drunk, it's a, a fool of, of, of senses? No, if he's telling you something true, it doesn't matter who he he is. Do you guys get it? And so when people try to say, well, men wrote the Bible, and it was so old and all that, old doesn't make untrue. Men don't make untrue. And so all of those things are false arguments. The truth is in the truth. Test the truth. And the Bible's been tested many, many times, and it's found true. We'll talk about that more, but right now you just have to take my word for it as we move on. As you have a, from a biblical point of view, your axioms, the next thing you're going to go to is your presuppositions. These are things that in your axiom won't make sense unless you already start off believing. Every worldview has these things, by the way. I can put any worldview that we discuss in this church, in this chart, and I can show you and give you an examples. But let's just do the biblical one. So we accept the Bible. Now, the moment you read the Bible, what do you have to presuppose in verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. you got to, like, presuppose there's a God. At the beginning, God is not proving himself to you. He's not giving you some logical argument. It's something you have to presuppose for the axiom to make any sense. Now, what is important is that your presuppositions and axioms do not contradict themselves or become illogical. Now, some people might point to the Bible and say, well, you guys believe in a talking snake. You guys believe in a Red Sea that parted. You guys believe in this. Yeah, you know why we believe in all kinds of these things? In the beginning, God. <laughs> what is illogical about a talking snake other than the fact that you don't understand how snakes could talk if God allowed them to talk? What's the problem with God splitting the Red Sea if a CGI artist in a, in a movie can make earthquakes happen? This is nothing but a CGI to God. There is no contradictory concept. This is not a married bachelor or square circle kind of thing. God himself is truth and doesn't work in irrationality. Is everybody tracking with that? So our presuppositions must not contradict themselves and sound logic. Remember, we showed you where logic comes from. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the logic, and he was with God. Then from our presuppositions, we have propositions, thing that, things that now we can say and we can demonstrate. So I make the proposition based on my presupposition and axiom that the world is discoverable through science. Is that proposition true? It is. But where did I get the ability to make that proposition? The world is discoverable through science. If I just rip that out from the biblical worldview, does that make any sense with atheism? 
Of course not. Because how does the world make sense if the world was guided by an unguided process or created without a creator or came from nothing into something? See, all of those logical inconsistencies show their worldview fails, but yet they'll say, I don't believe in God because I believe in science. You know what I say back to them? I believe in God because I believe in science. God has showed me how to discover his creation because I was made by him to do that. And that's just not my opinion. That's the founder of the scientific method's opinion. Yes, Francis Bacon, the one who discovered the inductive method, was a Christian. The one who wrote more about uh, the calculus and invented math to understand physics, Sir Isaac Newton, Christian, had some weird beliefs at different times. Now, some people may point to our history and say, well, that was just because they were all forced to be Christians. That is such an oompa loompa thing to do. There were so many atheists during the time of the Enlightenment, yet it was led by Christians. And then the next thing that we have is opinions. Opinions actually include scientific discoveries that we can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. Do you know that most science is a best guess? Let me give you an example. Most science is a best guess. Let's say you are going to boil some water, and I say, what is the temperature that boil water's at, uh, that, that the water will boil at? You'll say the standard answer. But there will be a point something. It won't be like an even number. It's kind of like pi. It will keep going. Now if I said, let's bring down that number of, of heat to the 10th place, to the 100th place, the point is you would never come to the precise end point of when you can say this is exactly the number that water boils. All science is a best guess. So we say we round to this number, and then now we see in practical application through the scientific method of experiment that water boils. So now it's like a degree here and a degree there. We understand. And we make guesses in science, and then we disprove the ones that don't work. So science is never even meant to give you certainty. It's just supposed to let you know you're making the right guesses. Oh, y'all follow me on that? I'll help you as you get further. We'll study about the problems of induction as we go on. Now, how many would like to know about the main biblical presuppositions? Would you? Okay, let me just end here today, and then we'll make it practical to your life so it doesn't get so deep. Here are the things when you go to a biblical worldview that you just need to understand, and if my mom can get it, I want you to get it, okay? Maybe that was a little deep for some of you. Others of you really enjoyed it, but I always like to preach to my 70-year-old mom, and if she can get it, y'all can get it, okay? And my daughter's here as well, eight years old. Here are the six things the Bible wants us to presuppose and trust that he's telling us the truth about, and then from there make our propositions and start living in a world where we can experiment and find our best path of success, human flourishment. God, we're going to believe in God. How many believe in God today? Amen. An all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, all-loving being revealed in three persons, separate but equal, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. You're like, man, that's a big, that's a big uh, presupposition. Yeah, but you can't understand the world without it. Can I help you understand this? If God did not have a loving relationship in community, how would we be ever made in his, his, his image to have loving relationships in community? God can't give something he doesn't have. Community started in the Godhead among the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And then when we were made in his image, male and female, to have children, a three-in-one family, he's a three-in-one being. Three-in-one, not three separate gods or three parts of God, three equal persons sharing Godhood like I and my family share humanity. No human is better than the other human in my family. Even though I have a child, even though I have a wife, I'm still on the same level of human. Father, Son are all on the same level of God, equal yet separate in person. Everybody go, ooh. See, that's deep. The next thing that we learn is that God created the heavens and the earth. This is our presupposition, is that God made things. Now, Christians debate over whether or not he did it in six days or whether the six days represent six time periods, so it could have been done over millions and billions of years, or whether or not God did it through evolution over those time periods. The difference between the, the creation in six days and the creation over periods of time is that they would still believe God uniquely created things, not through evolution, but he just did it over long periods of time, and that would explain how things are old. What is my simple answer to 
to this. I believe the earth was created in six literal days, but not in the times that, not to correspond the times as we would see. When Adam and Eve were created, were they first created as embryos that grew inside of a womb and then came out? No, they were created full grown. When God created the earth in the garden, did he create it as a little seed that continued to grow and those things? No, he created the earth full grown. How did he make the universe full grown? Now, some people may say, well, isn't that him deceiving us now when we test rocks or we look to these far stars off in these galaxies? No, because we're supposed to put into our math equation the worldview that he gave us. We're not supposed to look at Adam and Eve and go, oh, you're 30 years old. We're supposed to look at Adam and Eve and go, you're a day old, and then work our math from there. That doesn't mean that 30-year-olds don't in general have this size of body or that trees don't take this long to grow. We just know the foundation of where these things came from. So yes, looking at the way things are, if I wanted to travel to this far distance, it would take millions and billions of years. But if God wanted to make that star there in day one, he could. Does everybody get that? We'll talk more about these things as you continue to look more confused. No, I'm kidding. How many many of you are at least understanding some of the things here? Amen. How how many are happy there'll be parts two and three? Amen. (laughs) We believe that God created humanity. As you, talk, as you heard me talking to my friend there on the streets, we came into an ethical dilemma. If humans are just stardust, products of evolution, why do we matter? Why be moral? Why can't might be right? I'm stronger than you. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat you. There is not one reason in a godless society why that is wrong, but there is every reason to believe that's wrong in a moral, godly society. Now, let me ask you a question. Inside of your conscience and everybody that you know, do they think eating people is right or eating people is wrong? What worldview explains that? Christianity. Once again, we could talk more about other religions, but Christianity specifically says we were made in the image of God. Now somebody right here may be sassy and go, well, what about all the evil in the world? Well, where did evil come from according to our Bible? It came when we chose another worldview, and it brought evil in three ways. There's three different kinds of evil. There's natural disaster kind of evil when the storm clouds do what they do and Katrina happens. We just passed that anniversary. I used to live in New Orleans, and I did Katrina work down there, and some of my friends in New Orleans were thinking it was going to hit them again. Thank God it didn't come to them in full force, and and, and I, I saw it hit Pensacola, but not as bad. We've got to pray for all these places. But why is the world not working right? Because God cursed the earth because of our sin. The second kind of evil is human evil, when we sin against each other. What makes a Hitler be a Hitler? Does God make him do that? No, but God gave us choices. When God made us, he made the choice to give us choices, and then he makes the consequences according to our choice. If you Listen, everybody get this. If you don't like the choice to have evil, you can't get mad about that because you're making a choice. And if you don't like the way there's evil, God wouldn't have given you that choice and you wouldn't have anything to talk about because you would be a robot. So the very person that says, I have a problem with evil, has the wrong problem. The problem is that you don't know the solution, and the solution is Jesus solves evil. But remember, if he takes away choices to make evil, you wouldn't even know we're having a discussion about choice anymore. Do robots, do robots have a discussion about choice and what color the, 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 the master painted them? Does your car talk back to you and say, hey, don't sit on me. It looks like you're gaining weight. Come on now. Maybe some cars will one day. And then, and then the third kind of evil is a cultural evil, is a general evil that comes over a land over time, not just individuals, but people. And so it's similar to the second one, but there's mindsets that can develop. So people who try to say, well, you know, evil is just what we decided as we became advanced social animals, and that's why now it's wrong to eat somebody, because if everybody ate somebody, the village wouldn't grow. Well, see, the problem with that is still, why does it matter if the village grows or dies. Are the ants today having a dilemma to talk about which one of their ants are uh, over there and another neighborhood is dying? No. The only reason why we care about these things is because we're made in the image of God, moral creatures, and societies who turn away from that become evil societies. Natural evil, individual evil, cultural evil. The Bible explains it in Romans chapter 3. Can I read that for you? Amen. Am I losing you or are you guys keeping up? So let's look at what happened in Romans chapter 3. The Bible says, what shall we conclude then in verse 9? 
Do we have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. We've all made that choice on our own. There's no one righteous, not even one, no one that understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've become together worthless. No, there's not even one who does good, not even one. So that explains it. See, that's my presupposition because remember when I read the Bible, it tells me where evil came from. How many are thinking right now, Right now, honestly, you're thinking, I wish I could go talk to my friend who, who doesn't believe this stuff because this is really good. i got to share it, right? Because you hear them with a different worldview, and we get all intimidated like, oh, I don't know what to say to you. I don't know what to say to you. But my friends, go back to your axiom. Go to your Bible and go to the presuppositions and see how well they stand up against the world. The next thing that we see is there's Jesus. How many know Jesus is the central figure of the Bible? He's concealed in the Old Testament. He's revealed in the New Testament. He wasn't born in Christmas season or whatever. He was already existing with the Father. But around a certain time, he came in the flesh. When you put on your clothes, do you start existing then? When an astronaut puts on a spacesuit, do you start existing then? No. When Jesus put on flesh, did he start existing then? No, he's existed in the beginning with God from all eternity. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what do we see in our story? That Jesus says he's going to die for our sins. Actually fulfilling prophecies like Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm chapter 22. I was talking to two Jewish men and I was showing them prophecy and it was blowing their mind. Jesus was prophesied with Daniel. Look what uh, David in the psalm and it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet and they're gambling for my clothes. Think about how precise that is. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says he's rejected. He's put out. He's then put a curse upon. He is then looked at as a man despised. In Isaiah 52, it says they pull out his beard. All of these things. But while he is there in Isaiah 53, he says he's doing it for his people. More Jewish people have come to believe in the Jesus, the Jesus as their Messiah by that scripture than any other passage because Jesus fulfills it. He's not just coming out of anywhere. And then guess what does he say he's going to do. He's going to die and rise again. How many people have done that before? Okay, I'm not talking about a magic trick. I'm talking about real death, three days in the grave, not just holding your breath. We're not just talking about bad science, like, well, maybe he wasn't really dead. No, he was whipped 39 times, hung on a cross by public execution, people who are professional killers, and then given a death blow. Now, people may say, how do we know any of that happened? You want to doubt the Bible, you have to doubt all of history. You've just thrown it all in the garbage, and you only believe what you can see now, and therefore no, no place exists that you haven't been. You see how foolish they become when they start doubting archaeological evidence and, and resources? You doubt that, now you've become the arbiter of truth, and we've just shown you that's foolish because nothing is true and exists unless you've experienced it. Now, once again, can I prove this over time? Yes, but I'm not trying to prove, listen, I'm not trying to prove my presupposition. I'm just showing that my presupposition works and theirs doesn't. And then the next one, salvation. How many believe in salvation? Salvation teaches us that because we believe in Jesus, now we are regenerated, we're made new, and guess what? That's what the disciples believed. Would you die for a lie? You wouldn't. Now, you may believe something that is a lie and die for it like Muslim terrorists do, but would you knowingly die for what you know is a lie? Would you watch your children die for what you know is a lie? No. None of the disciples, the eyewitnesses, like Thomas, who said, I won't believe until I touch him, none of them recanted their testimony even under death. Some of them were beheaded. Some of them were beat. Others were tortured, boiled alive. Their families were killed. None of them ever said, hey, stop. We, we just made this up. His body's over there. The dogs ate it. We just wanted to start another religion. Never. Never, and not only was it true for them in the Bible, how many of you have met the risen Lord Jesus Christ in your heart and his power has changed your life and now you're a living testimony. You are literally a living testimony and the Bible says, blessed are you who hasn't seen and touched but yet still believe because it's in your heart and the Bible says that's true faith and the next thing that we believe and there's a judgment to come. That's all throughout the Bible. How many know you can't get too far in Genesis without judgment? All of a sudden, there's this guy named Noah, and they're not listening to what Noah's saying. And so what does God do in Noah's generation? Flood the earth. That's, that's Genesis chapter 6. So in my worldview, there's a judgment. You don't get too much further until they start partying like Katy Perry and Miley Cyrus, and we hear of a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And how's it go for those guys? 
They get fire and brimstone. So literally within the first few chapters of the Bible, we see you better not live like these folks and you better not do what they did because it won't go well with you. But what is the good news that we see throughout judgment? Not that God is sadistic, but remember God can do with us whatever he likes, just like you can do with a clay pot that you made, whatever you like. God can judge our flesh at any time. Sometimes people try to want to make you get really sensitive to God's judgment and say, imagine during the time of Noah's flood, there's a four-year-old girl just pounding on the door, let me in with her daddy, let me in, and your God, he let them die. What's the thing I'm going to say back to them? Do you believe in God? And if they say no, then I say, why do you care what, star- what happens to stardust? So you see, I just destroyed their worldview. They can't stand on a platform and point at my God. Or in other words, they can't sit on my God's morality and then slap him in the face. I tear down their moral right immediately. But then we owe an explanation, don't we? The flesh of all human creation belongs to God, and the souls he will judge rightly. What happened to that four-year-old is between God, between that four-year-old and her creator. Does everybody get that? God is in heaven, and he does what pleases him. We did not make ourselves deal with it. Those are the facts. So I'm not going to hell because I don't understand the four-year-old's problems. She might have suffered for a little while, and God might have brought her to heaven and not punished her with the sins of her father. That's what I believe because Jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. But it doesn't matter at this point the problem I have with that God and judge because if all of these other things are true, he's still God and judge. Now, thankfully, he's a good judge, and he shows us how he loves children, and those kinds of things are in the Bible as well. But God is going to judge the world once and for all. Final judgment is coming in Revelation chapter 20. That's a presupposition that I have. So in summary, when we look at our levels of knowledge, we need to have the axiom of the Bible, the main presuppositions that we went over, and then we start to make our propositions, and then we can discover the world around us. So in closing, do you want to defend and destroy? Everybody say defend and destroy. Look at your neighbor and say it like you mean it. Defend and destroy. Look at what 1 Peter chapter 3 says. Adam, would you come, please? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So everybody here, make Jesus the Lord of your heart. We're not here to try to win arguments. We're not here to fight with people on television like the talking heads do, though you may be asked to be on television. We are here to first and foremost make Jesus the Lord of our life. He's the Lord of my mind of my reasoning. He's the Lord of my strength, my effort. He's the Lord of my resources. He's the Lord of my life and love and how I treat my family. Then it says, always be prepared now as Jesus is Lord of your life to give an answer. The word there is apologia. It's not apologize. Apologize means to say, I'm sorry. This is where an English word can confuse you with a Greek word. Apologia means given a defense. And some people know how to give apologies as they're given a defense. Well, I'm sorry if you took it that way, but I really didn't mean it. See, they're really not given an apology. They're given an apologia, if you want to know the difference. And apologies, I'm wrong, please forgive me. How many know the difference? You don't defend yourself. You just say, I'm wrong, please forgive me. I'll do better next time. What can I do to make it up? An apologia is a defense. That's where you give the answer to defend the accusation they're saying against the Christian faith. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. So let's say you're new at the church, and you start to go out there and tell people, man, Jesus changed my life. I was once blind, now I see. I see the whole world differently. And then they look at you, and they're like, well, if the Bible is true, who did Cain marry then? And if, this, and if this is true, why is this here and this is true? And all of a sudden you feel like, you know, you're all on the spot and now you feel like, oh, I, I got to defend Christianity. The Bible says, put Jesus as Lord in your heart. Give the answer to everyone that you can. If you don't know, you can ask us, or people have been around for a while. By the way, Cain did marry his sister. People say, well, that's gross. Well, at least I'm not saying you're a monkey that married another monkey. At least I'm not saying that you came from an animal. Incest was the only way for the human population to grow. Genetics weren't affected as they were now. And it doesn't change if you're an atheist. You still came from the same monkeys. We're all family anyways. Over time in God's law, he said, this is not genetically sound. Don't do it. It's gross. We said, okay, God, that's cool. I don't want to marry my sister. Amen. How many are happy God said in the law, don't marry your sister? Okay? But you see, once again, does that change the moral code? Because if you believe you're a monkey... 
How do you get to tell another monkey not to marry their sister? And right now in universities, they are now promoting incest among siblings. You can look it up. Even among child and parent incest, because in the worldview of a non-believer, monkeys do what monkeys do. So set apart Christ as Lord. Give the reason of the hope that you have. It's hope. It's not just I'm trying to argue points. It's hope. Now watch. Do this with gentleness and respect. How many saw me respect the man on the streets? Amen. Go and do likewise. Don't call them names. If you have to use a descriptive term like sinner or, you know, things that help them know what they're doing, it's wrong, adultery, that's fine. But as you can see, I did it in gentleness. I did it in respect. Verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So think about this for a second. When I went to that art festival with Wani yesterday, he was the one that recorded it. Can we give it up for Juan doing the recording and editing? Thank you, Juan. Think about this. Do you know we had to pretty much beg people to stop? And do you know what my plead with them was? Hey, you guys say you're open-minded. Here's a pastor. Talk to me. I'm here. I'll listen. But you notice that oftentimes the ones who accuse us of being intolerant are they themselves the most intolerant. They are saying we're not open-minded, but they are the ones that can't even have a rational conversation. It took a lot just to get one person to stop and actually say, I'll dialogue with a Christian that I don't agree with. And I started right with the big ones. I said, ethically, I believe homosexuality is a sin. Abortion is murder. Uh, we have to you know, obey God's commands. Let's go. What do you believe? And that's how the interview went. And then he went to that in this interview into pragmatism. We show how that failed. And, and you saw how open he was to the golden rule. But he wasn't open to the golden rule until I destroyed his worldview. Oftentimes, people are not open to change until what they have been accepted is no longer valid for them. Sadly, that's oftentimes what it takes, especially for those of us who are older. Might take a divorce in life. You thought you knew it all. You married young, started your family, got that good job, and what happened now? Someone's cheating on you. The job fired you. Sometimes it takes a little bit of hard life, doesn't it? Hard knocks. But we have to be gentle when we do it. And if we can spare people the journey, let's give them the truth now and the truth will set them free. We'll defend it. And then as we learned, we'll demolish it. So we defend the truth and we demolish the arguments and pretension. If you want to do that with a biblical worldview, would you stand up with me now? And let's give Jesus a hand clap for his word. Come on. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Altar workers and band, would you come, please? I hope you got something out of today and that you come back next week. But let's make it practical right now. What are you seeing that's not from God's perspective that he wants to change in your heart right now? Let's just go through some of the big ones, and then we'll close out. And if you want to pray with us, we'll be up here to pray. If you have never accepted Christ into your heart, you can do that. Because that's the big change right there, going from sinner to saint, going to someone that's on the outside to the inside. God's no longer way up there. God's here on the inside. And all of these folks here would love to pray with you. Let me ask you a couple, couple of the big ones. Number one, do you see your sexuality the way God does? Do you see marriage and family the way God does? A lot of young adults here, are you preparing to do it God's way? Some of you, single moms, others of you, single dads, are you going to do it God's way? Number two, how about your job? Are you going to do finances and work and your purpose wearing the glasses of God? We're here to pray if you need help with that. How about this? Are you going to treat others the way you want to be treated? Are you going to live by the golden rule? I want all of us to live by the golden rule. In that discussion I had with him, there was nothing more to say, was there? It's like, can you think of a better thing to say than the golden rule? Well, have you been treating your neighbor the way you want to be treated? Your coworker, that person in traffic? We have so many opportunities to show people a different worldview just by the way we act, don't we? And then lastly, what are you doing with your worldview to a world that's dying and going to hell? Have you made every effort to talk to them? Have you washed your hands of them and just given up? Or are you still there getting your hands dirty, working, putting your hands to the plow? It would be real easy for me now. I started this church in a home Bible study. We have now over 200 people. It would be real easy to say, I got 100 in each service, 200, that's enough. I don't need to go back out there and meet some young hipster and argue with him about pragmatism. Man, I'm going to stay at home. I got a newborn. But no, I want to get my hands dirty in the field. I want to plant some more seed. 
You know when we were out there just standing there with our shirts on and preaching, people would stop. People would bring up their objections. We would start preaching to them. They didn't want to be on camera. We'd preach to them. A, a woman came around us weeping in a hard time of her life. Homeless people came around just standing on a corner saying, God, help me reach out for you. Started changing people's lives. You can make a difference. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, help us to have the worldview you want us to have. Let us line our thinking up to your thinking. Renew our mind. Would you ask God to renew your mind before we go on any of the areas I mentioned or ones I did not? Just in prayer, say, Lord, help me see things your way. And name the situation you want to see God in that situation. God, I want to see you in my school. I want to see you in my family, on my job. I want to see you, God, in my finances. I want to see you, Lord as I preach the gospel, as I go to the different ministries. I want to put on your glasses wherever I go. I want to test and approve your perfect will. 30 more seconds, saints. Just test it today. Make a determination. You're going to read the word, believe what it says, and start making those propositions. You're going to start making those declarations of what you're going to do. I'm telling you, you'll test and see that God is good. You'll test and see that his ways are good. few more moments, few more moments. God, Convict us of things that we're not doing your way. Convict us. You want to know as you're praying what the difference is between a hypocrite and a Christian? A hypocrite acts like they don't have an issue. The Christian repents and changes with their issues. That's the difference. It's not that Christians don't have issues to repent of. It's that we're not pretending we don't have them. A few more moments. Any worldview issues in your heart right now? And then we're going to close out praying for our nation, for our city to come to God and see things His way. A few more moments, though, for yourself. Just check your heart. Thank you, God. You've been so good to us. Oh, you've been so good to us. Paul always prayed in all of his epistles that people would know God. They would go to the depths of His understanding and love. Now let's pray for three people we know that we've got to share the message with. Right now, pray for them. Your mother, your father, family member, sibling, co-worker, three people. Come on, it's not a library, saints. Name out their names. Pray that God will bring you to them, not to demolish them, but an argument or a pretension they have against God in gentleness and respect.